Hello. <laughs> that was not a, as enthusiastic of a response as I was hoping for. Hello, it's nice to see you all. Very good, that's so nice, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you all, excuse me, this afternoon. We are, if you are brand new with us, we are just starting a new series that's happening, um, just began last week. This new series is called Asking God, and uh, in which we're considering some common questions that we put to God. So last week, Josh was reflecting on a big question that we might ask God, who are you? That's such an important place to start. So if you haven't had a chance, please go back and listen to that talk. That's a, a, so important if, if you missed that. But as we begin to understand who God is, we might then find ourselves asking this question to God, where are you? Where do I go to find you? So instead of diving deep into one passage of Scripture today, we're going to be looking at some big themes across a number of different Bible passages. So if you are someone who would like to go back and read some of these verses for yourself, that's awesome. Uh, and please talk to me afterwards. I would love to give you a list of all the passages uh, that I'm going to mention today. So before we look at Scripture, let me pray for us. Lord, Give us the faith to seek you. And then, Lord, let us find you in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last month, uh, for me, was the, the 10th anniversary of uh, when I first became a pastor, which kind of, just the number, I guess, prompted a lot of remembering and a lot of reflecting in me. My first year as a pastor was really difficult. It was very hard. It was very lonely. I was single. I was living alone. I was very far from friends and family. I was in a new place. And the work that I was doing was, was really hard. It was sometimes frustrating. It was sometimes scary. It, was, it involved being around a lot of death and dying and people who had lost loved ones, and it was just really overwhelming. There were days when it felt like my work schedule just kind of looked like spend the mornings with someone uh, whose child had just been murdered, then lunch, then the afternoon, like watching people die of addiction, and then around 4 p.m., like someone would threaten to stab me, and that was the moment when I thought maybe I should go check email and so I would just go do that for the rest of the day and then I would go home and I would just kind of, I had no internet, I had no TV, I would just kind of stare at the ceiling. I had known in advance that the work and the loneliness would be really hard but I, I believed that these were kind of sacrifices that I was making for God's kingdom. And at times in the past, those kinds of sacrifices have brought me great joy. I had felt like Jesus was, was very near in those moments. But now, in this moment, I felt nothing. There was no comfort. I kept trying harder. I kept taking more risks. I was thinking more and more often about my own death. And it seemed like God was nowhere to be found in that. And so one night, I was just staring at the ceiling, asking God, where are you? And I waited for an answer and I waited, 
and there was just total suffocating silence. When we put the question to God, where are you? We usually ask it in that kind of mode of desperation. Like, I'm dying out here. Where are you? Why, why are you hiding? We ask God about where he is, usually because it seems like, well, he's not here. Or at least what we expect is that if God was here, we wouldn't be feeling so much loneliness and despair. And so we cry out, God, where are you? Where is God? How would you answer that question? Just imagine that it was put to you by like a six-year-old who says to you, where, where is God? Where, where does God live? Where does God work? I don't, I don't think that any of you would say this, but some people, their first answer is something like, well, God is just an old man who lives in the sky. Which, I mean, if that's your answer... I'm trying to think of something nice to say right here, but that's, that's a pretty terrible answer. I'm sorry. That's just really a bad answer. He's, he's not a man. I'm not even sure that old really applies in this particular case, and he definitely doesn't live in the sky. But there is another version of that, which is when people say kind of more generically, well, God is just kind of up there. He's, he's somewhere above looking down on us, which still not a great answer, but... I would give that a passing grade. Like, you could, you could talk a teacher into rounding that up to a C- minus if you wanted to. I would give it a passing grade just because in the Hebrew scriptures, there, there is a kind of upness to God, a kind of aboveness. Like a lot of languages, Hebrew actually doesn't have a separate word for sky and heaven. It's, it's just one word. But it, it's not like the Israelites thought God lived in the sky, like a bird or a cloud. In fact, if anything, he just he wouldn't fit, first of all. More often than not, when, when the Old Testament talks about uh, the heavens, it describes them not as a place where God is, but as a place over which God has authority. He is Lord over heaven above and earth below. The earth belongs to him, the sky belongs to him, but he's not, he's not in either of those places. Still, one of the big reasons why God seems to be kind of up there is that when he does appear in a visible way to his people, his glory, his presence, descends. Sometimes as a cloud, sometimes as fire. And eventually that visible presence dwells within the temple that the Israelites build in Jerusalem. This is a, an important part of this God's story, especially that second verse, when his people finally finish constructing the temple, God moves in. It becomes his house. It is where he is in a special way. He still, he, his authority over the heavens and the earth, all of that remains, but in a unique way, God chooses to be present and to meet with his people at the temple. So for a long time, if you were an Israelite and somebody asked you, where is God?, there was actually a kind of place that you could point to. You could point towards Jerusalem. And if you were in Jerusalem, you could point towards the temple. And if you were in the courtyard of the temple, you could point towards the center of the temple, a room called the Holy of Holies. This is the room where God is. And there's something, I think, really amazing about this, that the God of the whole universe would choose to just kind of move into a little studio apartment so that he could be close to us, to his people. 
But whenever we think of God living like in a particular physical location, there's always this temptation that we will forget that God is still God over everything, over heaven and earth. And so we start to think like, I need to be careful to obey God when I am near him, but like he might see me, but over there, I can kind of just do whatever I want. And let's be honest, I mean, sometimes, sometimes you might know people that even kind of treat the church building in, in that sort of way. Like, if you're miles away, you're off doing whatever, you, you're playing the, all the music, just bumping it with the, all the problematic lyrics and just playing whatever you want, singing along, and then you start thinking about church. And suddenly you start trying to, you know, find something Christian-ish on the playlist. You find yourself, you start saying things like, you know, I think I read sometime that Lizzo was a Baptist or... or or like, you know that's, that new song, uh, what's it called? Uh, Late Night Talking? Like maybe that's, could that be about prayer? Maybe, if you think about it. You start trying to take some of these things and just see if maybe there is something church about them. By the time you're driving to church, now you're like switching over to the edited versions. You're looking for something more upbeat. Then you actually get inside the church and that's when it's eyes closed, hands waving, Waymaker, miracle worker, that is who you are, God. That's a little bit of what seemed to be happening to the Israelites, actually. That they, they forgot that God is meant to be obeyed everywhere in all dimensions of their lives. And the prophets warned them about this. Here's the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place. And Jeremiah slips this warning in there as well. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah is referring to people who are saying, look, Jerusalem can't possibly be conquered by any sort of foreign army because that's where God's temple is at. And Jeremiah is saying, not so fast. It's, it's, it's nothing to do with the building. In fact, just because God's house is in your city or on your block doesn't mean that you know him. He can see how you're living, and if you continue to reject him, he may move out. The people don't listen, and so that's exactly what happens. The, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of God leaving the temple. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the entryway of the temple. God just straight up abandons his house. And none of this really sinks in for the Israelites until eventually they are conquered by foreign armies. Those armies even enter the temple. They go in, they ransack and desecrate the room where God should have been, the Holy of Holies. And people suddenly realize, oh, I guess God was really serious. He really did leave. And that begins a long period that we call Israel's exile, when they are both waiting for people who were captured by foreign armies to return to Israel, but they are also waiting for the return of God's presence to be with his people. And then one day, an angel appears to a man named Joseph and tells him that his wife, Mary, will fall pregnant and that the child she bears will one day be called 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is that baby born in a manger, and in a very quiet and unexpected way, suddenly the presence of God has returned. Jesus carries with him the reality of God's presence, which he calls the kingdom. At, at his word and his touch, people are healed, evil is cast out, oppression is overthrown, outcasts are given attention, the abused are justified, a new kind of people begins to gather. And despite all this, the return of God's presence is, is not totally obvious, sometimes even to Jesus' own followers. They are kind of prepared to think of him as the new king of Israel, but it takes like another leap. It takes the resurrection for them to look on Jesus and say, as the disciple Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Before his death, Jesus tells his disciples a bunch of things that at first don't totally seem to add up. He tells his disciples that he will have to leave them. But also that he will send another, a Holy Spirit, to be with them. And that somehow this Holy Spirit will also be his presence and the presence of the Father. And so, in another sense, he will never leave them. If you feel like you kind of understand that and yet you still have questions about the relationship of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, well, you are pretty much up to speed. You are understanding about exactly what even an expert theologian will understand about the relationship. After saying all of these things, after dying, after the resurrection, Jesus leaves his disciples by ascending into, where else? The sky, where they lose sight of him behind a cloud. So now imagine you are someone who loves and follows Jesus, and you are trying today to answer a six-year-old's question, where is God? Well, you could say, in heaven, which, that's a pretty decent answer, B+. Plus. That, if heaven simply means sort of wherever God is at, then yes, Jesus has told us that he is returning to be with the Father, and as one God, they are not living in the sky, they are ruling and reigning over sky and earth and everything. There's a very ancient statement of what Christians believe called the Nicene Creed. And one of the things Christians have believed from the beginning is that Jesus rose again according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. So, where is God? Well, in heaven, fair enough. The danger, obviously, is that like, with, like with the Israelites, we, we might be tempted to think that heaven is pretty far away and forget about God's awareness of us and authority over us right now. So we start to think that obedience only really starts to matter the closer that you get to heaven. So people do talk sometimes as if heaven is like a very kind of proper place where everybody is on their best behavior. So if you're, if you're feeling a little bit sickly, like you might be seeing God soon, then you might want to clean up your act. But if you're feeling okay, then heaven is a long way off. Just kind of live your life. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you have really been living with and loving and relating to God for a while. And then you might answer this six-year-old's question by saying, well, where is God? Well, God is inside of us. 
He is, he is in our hearts. That's a good answer. It can, it can freak out a six-year-old, like, what do you mean someone is living inside of me? But it's a good answer. I give you an A-. minus. Like, that will get you on the honor roll, that answer right there. When we, know, when we come to know Jesus, Scripture does insist that God's Spirit is within us. And so if someone is to ask me, where is God, I can point to a place. I can say, in you, peace, God's presence dwells. In you, Gobari, God's presence dwells. In you, Dani, God's presence dwells. In us, God's presence dwells. And that's all true. And for me, it's still not quite enough. It's a little bit, for me, it's a little bit like if you ask me, like, hey, hey Patrick, where is, where is Elm City Vineyard? And I say to you, like, oh, uh, easy, it's in the northern hemisphere. You'd be like, okay. Uh, so, like, at the next light, would I take a left? Or, like, it's a true answer. It's a true statement. But it just doesn't do a lot to get us where we need to go. Okay, God is in you. But you are a galaxy. There is a lot of room in you. Where in you? That's where things start to get interesting. Where in your life? Where in your experience? Where in your history? Where in your feelings? Where in your body? Where is God in you? Scripture takes these two ideas, that God is in heaven and that God is in us, and it affirms them both together, and yet in a way that I think is so important to try to understand, even though it kind of breaks my brain a little bit. And yet I think there is something important for us to wrestle with here. So over and over again, the Bible flips things upside down in a, in a weird way. So here are some examples. This is Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Here's Ephesians 2. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Here's Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What's going on here? I mean, one of the core convictions that I, that I have about myself, it shows up every time that I take a personality quiz, is that I am alive. Now, all the quizzes agree on that. I always, it always comes back, congratulations, Patrick, you scored very highly on living, breathing, and clicking on things. Your personality type is not dead. But these passages seem to suggest that I am not as alive as I always think that I am. In surprising ways, then, when we ask God, where are you? God's answer is always, I'm with you. The real question is, God says, where are you, Patrick? What has kept you from yourself? Why are you still so far from being you? As the Bible describes it, the, the real Patrick is not where I think he is. The real Patrick, the truest version of myself, is already with God, is already secure in Christ. 
God knows this Patrick completely. This Patrick dwells with God. This version of me, the one standing in front of you, this sweaty one wearing the cargo shorts, there is something true and something false about this Patrick. Something unreal about me. I get distracted. I get confused. I pursue things I don't really want. I act in ways I don't like. I chase after things I don't really believe in. I put up false fronts to impress people. But God knows who I really am. Who I really am is also who I will become. The true Patrick is, in ways I don't totally understand, already with Christ in heaven. Don't get me wrong, I think that the true version of myself that is off there in God's presence is also wearing cargo shorts right now. I don't think he's somebody like totally different than who I am right now, but he is the realest, healthiest version of myself. It's like Jesus is is standing on this horizon of my life and he is standing hand in hand with me, with my real self, and he is constantly calling out to this Patrick that you see in front of you. He is saying, Come join us. Come be free. Come be who you really are in God. God, it turns out, is much more real than we are. He is the realest thing there is. We can become real, but we are often hiding under layers and layers of false beliefs and burdensome expectations and brave faces that we put on just to make it through the day. It sometimes feels like we are just only catching a glimpse of something real. We get just a moment when all the other layers are stripped away and we know we are finally dealing with something that really matters. Something that is as real as God is. The question is not where is God hiding, but where have we been hiding? So in our last few minutes, I just want to suggest three I don't know, strategies that I have found, that I've found helpful for seeking out the realness of God. And that also then means, I think, seeking out the truest version of myself. First, here's how, here's how I would answer a six-year-old. At, at least today, in this moment, this is the most honest answer I have to give about where God is at. That God is wherever we begin to worship him. That God is in whatever leads to his worship. If there is something that causes us to honor God's goodness and truth, that's because God is already there. So, here are three bits of advice that have been fruitful for me in trying to seek out this God. First, go to where the world is suffering. Think back to to what the prophet Jeremiah said. If you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place. If we are struggling to figure out where God is at, why wouldn't we start by going to the places that are his highest priority? Places where our ways and our doing lead to justice. Places where the oppressed are set free. Where aliens are welcomed. Where orphans are turned into family. Where widows are vindicated. Where the bloodshed of innocence will be redeemed. Where idols that hurt people are smashed. If that's what God is seeking, if that's where God would want to dwell, then we should go there if we want to find him. 
We go to these places not because God like sends us off to there, but because God is already there and calls us to meet him there. He is doing the redeeming work. There might be opportunities to testify and celebrate and even participate in the work God is doing, but it remains his work. When we go to places where the world suffers, sometimes we see for ourselves how God is overcoming suffering, and it causes our spirits to worship. Sometimes we go to where the world suffers and we don't see progress. Sometimes we end up suffering as well. Worship is not the same thing as joy. Being close to suffering won't always lead to joy, but it can lead to a deep and secure conviction that God grieves over sin. It can lead us to share God's urgency for this suffering to end. It can lead us to understand the God who would take on suffering to end suffering. And that cry of longing and even anger becomes worship. That's partly why I think it's important for us to seek out the world's suffering. In some ways, I'm sure that you are a suffering person. It doesn't always help us to merely dwell in our own suffering. To think to ourselves, well, I'm not seeking out anyone else's suffering. I have plenty of my own. I believe God does want to meet you and to heal you. But in order to be healed, we often have to go to God and rediscover the compassion of Christ for other people. Over and over, the, the accounts of Jesus' life on earth use a particular word to describe what happens when he sees suffering people. Sometimes in English, we translate this word in these verses as compassion or as pity. It's all the same word in Greek. The word means having one's bowels moved, more literally, but kind of in a, in a metaphorical sense. Just like metaphorically, we would talk about having our hearts touched. But we also use those metaphors because we recognize that there is some real feeling there. God gets close enough to suffering, Jesus gets close enough to suffering, that something moves in him. He is affected. He allows this suffering to penetrate his body. His heart is broken. His gut is wrenched. And then he puts this suffering to an end. It can certainly feel, I think, sometimes like we are living at a low moment in the history of compassion. Most people I know are feeling a lot of compassion fatigue. We are constantly being told that we don't care enough about this or that problem or that we don't pay enough attention to this or that issue. The thought of then having to like get worked up about something else is just exhausting for many people. But what if instead of reading about more issues, we get up, we go to where someone is suffering, we allow ourselves to feel what Jesus feels, and we don't experience that then as a new obligation over us or as a new thing that now we have to fix? What if we anticipate that we will feel this way because Jesus is already there and already at work and we have merely been called as his family to witness him in word and deed? What if the real invitation is not to care more or to work harder, but to worship there in God's presence? And what if that worship will heal our suffering as well? If you've been around ECV for some time, you, you already know many stories of, of moments when we as a community have faced something very real, when we become present to one another's sufferings. There have been 
cancer scares and terrible accidents and anxious moments in hospital rooms. There has been the tragic loss of parents, the tragic loss of children, the tragic loss of friends. There have been these powerful, real moments in courtrooms and in prisons and in the streets during protests. And, and oh yeah, there was also that time when we survived a global pandemic together. I'm not going to tell you all of these stories, but I would encourage you to tell them to one another or to ask about them if you are new. But the point is that every time we have showed up to one another's pain, it has led to these stories that we tell over and over again because they remind us of who God is. And so we start to worship. We have this, this moment unfolding even right now in the lives of the Kennedys. And we have people who are not present here this afternoon because they are present there to the Kennedys' suffering. And you all, in praying for them, also become more present. By the way, uh, showing up, as, as in Jeremiah's language, showing up to a place of innocent, innocent bloodshed has been the mission of the nonviolence group at ECV that Kim was talking about, which, as she mentioned, you are welcome to join in any of their activities, but particularly that invitation to come on September 17th. Together, in that march, in that action, we will move together towards suffering, and God will be there, and we will tell the story, and there will be reason to worship. Here's a second thought that has been helpful to me. Go to where your heart or your bowels or, or whatever works best for you in your language is moved. The suffering of other people is not the only thing so real that it moves us powerfully. As Colossians talks about our lives hidden with Christ and God, it does so in this context. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. These things that are above, these are real things. Whatever is as real as God is. So, for instance, perhaps for the moment, your life is dedicated to being a student and you feel like you are always preparing for something else. But nothing is stopping, from, stopping you from finding in your studies that, that your guts are moved by truth. That, that in your learning you experience something real and powerful and you are moved even to worship. God is love and God is beautiful and God is true and God is an illuminating light and God is a friend and God inspires. He breathes into us. If we go to even the part of ourselves that can be moved by God's glory, if we get real there, if we don't just fill up our lives with worry and distraction, if we show up to the parts of our own selves that are touched by God's own self, then we will find God and worship. For a long time at ECV, we have had uh, all kinds of different artists just kind of wandering around in our midst, and it's been amazing. Many of them connect with God by the way they experience worship something real in art. People who are on that journey often gather together at the artist's circle that, that Carissa mentioned, um, which has a meeting coming up on September 12th. So if you stick around for dinner tonight, Mariah will, will tell us a little bit more about that. But in the art that we share together, we are, we are see seeking something more than just like, well, that's, that's nice. We are seeking an encounter with God that leads to worship. Finally, 
Last piece of advice, if God is in whatever leads to his worship, then there is one pretty obvious place you can seek out God, which is through worship. Worship is a thing you can always do. It doesn't need a reason. If you allow yourself to shut out other distractions, if your heart and mind show up to worship, you can be confident that God is already there. And sometimes when you choose to worship, even when it feels hard, you meet God powerfully, and suddenly you do have reason to worship. It is no longer a discipline, it is easy. In that, in that first year of ministry, when things were so difficult, I found myself alone at night. I was staring up at the ceiling, saying to God, where are you? And what it felt like was just total, unrelenting silence. But something inside of me basically said, okay, fine. God, if you're not going to come to me, I'm going to come to you. Maybe you have completely abandoned me, but I'm still going to worship you. And you know what? You can't stop me. And so I just started praying out loud and lifting my hands to God and praising him. And then something like started to rise up in me from some real part of myself that I hadn't even known before. And suddenly I started praying in tongues, which was not only had I never done that before at that point in my life, I had never even heard anybody pray in tongues before that moment. And so it was needless to say, very unexpected. Even in that moment, I remember thinking, this is very weird. But I was only speaking in tongues because of this like overwhelming joy that started rushing upon me. And I was suddenly open to the nearness of God that had been there all along. And I, and I just spent hours in the middle of the night with God, worshiping and enjoying him. And after that, day to day, I still had plenty of ups and downs in that work. But that season of life never felt as hopeless or as despairing as it had before. I, I knew where I could find God. I knew I could worship for no reason except the fact that God is worthy of worship. Maybe actually now is a good time to invite our worship team to come forward. In the story that you tell yourself, you might believe that you showed up here today for any number of reasons. You wanted to make friends, you wanted to hear nice music, you want to turn your life around, you want to be a better person, you just didn't have anything else to do. But your truest self, who you really are, knows that you actually showed up here today to worship. And that deepest, truest part of you has been worshiping this whole time. Whether you know it or not, we have been worshiping in prayer together, in communion, in music, in sharing God's word, and we will continue to worship. And so if there is one invitation that I want to leave with you in the moment, an invitation that is immediately applicable, it's an invitation to worship. Stop thinking for a moment about whatever other reason you think you came to this room today. Trust that God wants to meet you in worship and set your attention on worshiping God. Give yourself over to the praise of God.